Did you know that 85% of your engine wear occurs at startup? Yes, that is correct. And this is where Lower the Friction comes in by putting a protective, lubricating barrier on all moving parts. This now gives you full-time protection to make your engine last longer, run smoother, give you better performance, and improve fuel economy. People across the country are reporting some very exciting results. Go to LowerTheFriction.com, place your order, and enter in promo code SOS to get 5% off of your order. That's LowerTheFriction.com. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Secrets of Saturn live stream. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. This week, Wayne McCroy and I are together, and Crow Triple Seven is supposed to be joining us. The Great Baldini will not be here tonight, so we're going to be the Fab Three for the moment. But anyway, we're going to be going over a specific chapter in a book by a man named Bertrand Russell. If you haven't heard of him, he is, or was, an elitist quite proper, total scumbag, definitely in with all the eugenic stuff, all the usual goods. Wayne, what do you want to start with here? You want to go over a little bit of old Bertie's background? Yeah, might as well. Uh, good old Bertrand Russell. Uh, he was a proper uh, royal folk, as uh, you, you did mention there, uh, a fellow of the Royal Society. He had all the different uh, titles and, uh, you know, royal accoutrements that go along with it. Uh, he was from a very wealthy and to-do family in England, uh, the Russells, which is actually one of the uh, 13 Illuminati uh, family bloodlines that's mentioned by Mr. Fritz Springmeier in his book of the same name. So, uh, you know, if anybody wants to look into the background of the Russell clan, uh, this guy was a proper member thereof, and he held titles of uh, royalty and uh, had a lot of influence in our world. Strangely enough, uh, one guy, he, this guy rubbed elbows with just about everybody that you could think of who was important uh, in the early to mid 20th century here. Uh, people like Einstein, Eisenhower, um, he, he, you know, rubbed elbows with all these people. John Dewey, uh, that was another one that he tended to rub elbows with a lot. Uh, a, a bunch of these guys. And these are like the, the royal dynastic class uh, of people that really kind of steered a lot of what happened in our society here in this last century. So uh, he had a lot of influence in the world, uh, whether people realize it or not. I mean, you look back now, and most people have probably never even heard of him, or if they have, it's in passing, and they think, oh, it's just some, you know, stuffy old author guy that talked about politics or something. But uh, if you really start to read a lot of what this guy wrote about, uh, you could see how they used it as a foundation for the control systems that they're laying out. And we'll get into that here tonight, uh, because this is actually from his book, The Impact of Science on Society which was written initially in 1952 is when he put this out. So keep that in mind as we're going through some of this tonight. 1952, and then look at the world today and think about how it is that we are here where we're at right now. All right, so I pulled it up on Amazon. It says the date of its release was January 1st, 1953. Don't know if that's accurate or not. Close enough to what you said for all I care. Uh, the quick blurb on this. So the actual book we're reading from, from is called The Impact of Science on Society. We're going to be going over Chapter 3, which is called, what is Chapter 3 called? Scientific Technique and Oligarchy. And of course, 
given what's going given what's going on right now, there's a reason obviously why we're going to do that. But right on the Amazon blurb, it says, "In this concise and luminous book, the winner of the 1950 Nobel Prize for Literature and perhaps the outstanding philosopher of our time, regarded by many educators, scholars, and critics as the most original English thinker since David Hume." examines the changes in modern life brought about by science. He suggests that its work in transforming society is only just beginning. He shows that science now offers the possibility of far greater well-being for humanity than it has ever known before. In his final chapter, the author faces the fundamental question of our time. Can a scientific society be stable? All right, so that's good enough. Should you actually be interested in this, the name of the book one more time is The Impact of Society on, excuse me, The Impact of Science on Society by Lord Bertrand Russell. Easily available at any bookseller you choose. And let me get the document up. All yeah, right. and just to put a fine point on things, the luminous volume <laughs> that, that we are going to read. There, they got to get their code words and stuff in there, don't they? Man, they're the always taking the piss out of us. They're always just laughing at us in every. I'm, every, I'm telling you, man, everywhere, it's, man. It's, it's crazy. Constantly, they, they constant poke in the eye to us anymore. It's everything they do. They're like they're mocking us every chance they get. Well, you and, know, it's not they, a poke in the eye anymore, my friend. Folks. Now it's that's literally the finger up the ass, literally. Pretty much. No, no, no. That's oh, you got to take the no, new COVID test. Uh, finger up the ass. Swab. It's a swab. We'll call it a swab. Schwab. It's a schwab. <laughs> a schwab. It's a Klaus An schwab. schwab. The great reset. Danny. All right, so. By the way, let me check and see how many people are actually here, or if I should dilly dally and let more. We seem to get a lot of people filter in in the first few minutes. You know, we never did a full show on Crochable Seven on Bertrand Russell. That might be somebody we we should look at. Just a oh, that guy's got a got quite the background. He's got quite the background. If you look at it, he does. Uh, he's yeah. he's definitely keyed in. Like he's he's one of the you know the royal family players for sure. Yeah. Um. So. It, he he spent a lot of time uh, traveling and uh, studying and and different things like that. Like he uh, was fascinated with mathematics, and that was one of the things that he credits with actually preventing him from committing suicide. It said uh, from from something that I read about him. He was so interested in mathematics that that was one of the only things in his youth that kept him from committing suicide. So that could give you kind of an indication of what the mental health of this guy was. And he was an avowed atheist. Uh, even mm. right up into his death. So uh, that gives you kind of a, a vantage point of where he comes from. Um, so stuff. That, that should, yeah, that should tell you a little something about uh, the kind of personality he had. So <laughs> it's it's something. But, yeah, we could dilly-dally a little, little bit longer here until uh, people actually filter into the into the chat room here and stuff. So we're doing we good. Can... It says we're at 280. So, But uh, we, let, let's go over this a minute. Uh, what made you choose? Have you read this whole book, by the way, before I even go any further? I have not read the whole book. I've read bits and pieces of it, and I've kind of uh, leafed through it from time to time. Uh, this chapter, I've read the entire chapter, and uh, it really presents the world today as we see it here in the West. So that's kind of why I wanted to go over it here tonight, because it, it sums up the type of system we're living in and you know what direction this could possibly be going. Well, tell everybody why you chose this, because this this one this week was your pick. 
Oh, well, I just wanted people to realize that uh, all of the nonsense we see in the media is exactly that. It's nonsense. Uh, Our governance system that we have in place here in America does not operate the way that they present it to people. And it's actually not a democracy or a representative republic or anything of the sort. It's an oligarchy. And that's what we're going over here because this is uh, what we're looking at here. Chapter three, the scientific technique in an oligarchy. And it it explains here, when we get to the reading here, we'll see. uh, Russell actually explains what an oligarchy is exactly. And uh, we'll see how our system here has been set up in such a way as to be a sort of oligarchy. Uh, They used the oligarchy framework as the method for bringing forth the technocracy is basically what it, it, you know, really stems out to be here uh, because you're talking about uh, this is the impact of science on society and uh, the oligarchy is the model that they chose to institute this scientific type of a governance system, which is actually technocracy. So technocracy is actually a type of oligarchy when we get down to it. And we'll see that as we we go through the reading here, and we'll be able to analyze a little bit more as we go. And we did get a bunch of people just join in the last few minutes. So we are reading Chapter 3 from the book The Impact of Science on Society by Lord Bertrand Russell. All right, so we're going to do Chapter 3, Scientific Technique in an Oligarchy. I mean by oligarchy, any system in which ultimate power is confined to a section of the community, the rich to the exclusion of the poor, Protestants to the exclusion of Catholics, aristocrats to the exclusion of plebeians, white men to the exclusion of colored men, males to the exclusion of females, or members of one political party to the exclusion of the rest. A system may be more oligarchic or less so, according to the percentage of the population that is excluded. Absolute monarchy is the extreme of oligarchy. So he's just pointing out the obvious here right in the right in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And, They're dividing conquer tactics, it, as it were. Yeah, when you look at it, that's kind of, uh, you know, one, one group to the exclusion of another. Uh, so aristocrats to the exclusion of the plebeians. Um, I, I would say I would that's argue us, that the that's way. the situation. We're, yeah, that's the situation we're sitting in right now. Uh, you have your elites and the rest of the population, and it's a very small percentage of the elites. And they do consider themselves royal families and royal bloodlines. So that would be absolute monarchy, wouldn't it? So that, he says, is the extreme of oligarchy. And that's exactly how, you know, the political systems in this world have operated thus far. And that's exactly how they're framing up this new technocracy system as well. Uh, It's going to be the whole uh, division between the the elite royal classes and the rest of the masses that will be filtered into smart cities uh, to live on on the uh, on the grid here, as it were. Uh, under this artificial intelligence control grid, control system, and monitored 24-7 and kept from, uh, you know, the different uh, natural uh, outside, the nat- the nature, natural uh, parks or whatever that they're going to designate outside of the, the major city areas. See, that, that's, that all goes with the whole 2030 and the Agenda 21 bit, uh, the whole thing. So you can see how a lot of this stuff does interrelate. Uh, what the plan is for technocracy is keep people 
in smart cities, keep us all crammed in the smart cities, unable to leave the smart cities and go out into the countryside per se and out into nature, which they will make like, you know, national parks or however they want to designate that. So you can't go there and pollute and this will save the environment and all that stuff. And you can see how this whole, uh, you know, uh, green deal and everything plays in with all of it too it's all contrived it's all contrived and it's all about control more so than anything uh so even though they they try to frame up a lot of these things as being uh for the 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 common good you know we're going to save the environment so uh we're going to set aside these uh uh, nature areas so people can't go to them uh you stay in the city where we put you it will hurt you all together in the city you guys stay there don't go out into the uh, the countryside or, or out into nature at all Leave uh, because that's nature. off limits for you yeah and th- we'll call it environmentalism it's it's all good you know and that's exactly what they do they try to frame this in the best way possible to sell people on the idea and make them believe that it's in their both uh, their own best interest i can't talk tonight man i'm all <laughs> tongue-tied for some reason uh in their own best interest to listen to what they want us to do so that that's kind of uh, the extreme as to where this is leading but uh, we'll see as we get through uh, a little further down in the reading we'll, we'll see some more details about how this all works by the way we have some modern day elitists whether they're really who they seem to be or not uh someone like old uncle elon mr musk He's uh, trying to help us with the problems we have in cities. Instead of encouraging people to go back to nature and and spread out and and just get away from these massive cities, which would actually technically help with the population problem that they say exists because less people would be crammed together and they wouldn't want to be going out to bars and things like that all the time. But that's beside the point. He's got this system that he's come up with for not just single a single tunnel, but multiple level high speed tunnels underneath uh, in California in the Los Angeles area, so that people can get from place to place easier. Now, one of the things that keeps people from being in these areas is because it's a huge pain in the ass to go anywhere. I I, I say let that ride and encourage people to leave. Look, that's not that's not a great place, man. It, 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 just go somewhere else. California is huge. You know how much beautiful place uh, different places you could you could find there and, and not be crammed into the, the shithole that Los Angeles has turned into oh that's the thing that's the whole uh, that's that's the kind of blueprint that they want for yeah, it's gonna the keep world them they're there. trying to build like right. they, they're recognizing that, that yeah the congestion really is getting that bad and and within however many years they projected so now they got Uncle Elon coming out with his super plan because he's always got super plans <laughs> yeah not much behind them <laughs> I digress, though. Uh, what do you mean? He's sending Mars, a barn you know, silo Jason. to Mars. What the hell's wrong with you? Yeah, we're going to Mars, you know, uh, thanks to Uncle Elon there. Two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but he actually made the space balls the flamethrower, too, so. <laughs> it's like all the jokes. He's he's all of them wrapped up in one funny little fellow. Yeah. Yeah, he really is, and that's something. You could always tell one of the poster children for these people because they try to uh, just pin all these good ideas and stuff on them. Like, come on, do you really think the guy is that much of a genius? He sounds like an idiot when he talks. So I'm not going mean, to hold that one against him because I've met plenty of smart people who are stutterers and things like that. It's it, it, The intellectual capacity, I, I'm I'm kind of fair about that one. It does not because true, a lot of times true. they're they're socially awkward. To be honest with you, a lot of the people who there are very few people. I hate to say this is going to sound so arrogant, but it is what it is. Any of the people that I I've literally met and said, "Oh my goodness, that person's quite a bit smarter than me." 
they've almost always been socially awkward. I've always thought I was kind of on that cusp, like you, me, all of our friends growing up, like we're all smart, but we're not super uber geniuses. So we all were kind of okay with being in society. We could, we could relate, but we're still in our heads a lot, that kind of thing. Yeah, I kind of get where you're going with that. Uh, I don't mind sounding like an idiot myself, so (laughs) I'll I'll just do a lot of talking (laughs) and, you know, get to, get to the point, but, uh. Anyway, uh, he's a figurehead, no doubt about it. I don't think everything they attribute to him is all his ideas. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, there's there's something contrived there. Once again, I'll use the word contrived again. It seems to be a popular word for right now. But yeah, it, you know, all these companies and stuff that they they claim he came up with the ideas for. He's got the Tesla, the SpaceX, uh, like all these different things, and he's got that. What 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 is it? The boring company is that what it's called? Yeah, with the building the tunnels and like, yeah. come on, man, and Neuralink. He's he's got his hands in all this different stuff, and it's all supposedly. the uh, cutting edge transhumanist humans going to the future kind of thing. Tesla's losing money, but they're being literally carried by the government every year. Now, to be fair, I thought about that. Money. Hmm? They're hemorrhaging money. They're not just losing money. They're right. hemorrhaging money. But, but to be fair, and if and, and this isn't what I think is the reality, but to be fair, if if a governing body wanted to push to a new technology like this that people are not embracing yet, a company who actually took the initiative to make this new technology would need to be carried for a while because for 100 plus years, 100 and – man – internal combustion engines probably more like what 130 140 at this point but anyway people are used to the concept of buying cars regular automobiles get get your gas drive off kind of stuff for a company to try and get into a completely new way of travel they aren't going to do very well at first and i understand that but don't do i think that there isn't an ulterior agenda here of course there's a freaking ulterior agenda here oh there always is no doubt about that they don't do us favors. Let's put it that way. Yeah, they—they're they, not doing us any favors, and Elon Musk is not going to help us in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, with his ideas or ideals that he's—he's he's putting out there for public consumption. It's all part of the package to get people to buy into it. That's all it is, and they put him out there as the the figurehead for this. Same thing with Bill Gates. Like he, it, a lot of these guys. They're just put in the position they're in to be the figurehead. It's it's the same thing like with the presidency here in the U.S. Here's the figurehead. This is your scapegoat or this is, you know, your hero for, for you to worship and put your attention and praise upon, to put your concentration on. In the meantime, the people behind the scenes that are really running things will push forward whatever agendas and or technologies that they see fit to do so. Uh, and, and that's what it's all about. So it's a distraction. Like Elon Musk is more of a distraction than anything. And that's, you know, provable just by the fact that we're talking about him here tonight uh, when you think about it. So, well, he is impacting on the world stage, whatever his reality is. He's doing things. He's got a lot of people working for him. These companies do exist for real. The products are real. So it is what it is. You know, he's he's guiding a narrative as the figurehead. Who knows what he really is? Um, probably never find out because those kinds of people are going to be protected. They're, he's probably got records buried and, and all that kind of crazy shit. So, anyway. No doubt about it. Yep. So moving on with the chapter, apart from masculine domination, which was universal until the present century, oligarchies in the past were usually based upon birth or wealth or race. 
I would suggest that it still is. A new kind of oligarchy was introduced by the Puritans during the English Civil War. They called it the Rule of the Saints. It consisted essentially of confining the possession of arms to the adherents of one political creed, who were thus enabled to control the government in spite of being a minority without any traditional claim to power. This system, although in England it ended with the Restoration, was revived in Russia in 1918, in Italy in 1922, and in Germany in 1933. Now, <laughs> this is hysterical, because what did he just name three instances, three of the biggest instances of? And dun, 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 communist fascism. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it is now the only vital form of oligarchy, and it is therefore the form that I shall especially consider. Well, thank you for being so honest with us, Lord Russell. We have seen that scientific technique increases the importance of organizations, and therefore the extent to which authority impinges upon the life of the individual. Take a look around, ladies and gentlemen, who's not wearing a mask? It follows that a scientific oligarchy has more power than any oligarchy could have in pre-scientific times. By the way, we recommend two, maybe even three masks. There's a yeah, tendency. Put on as many masks as you can get on. Just your wear face, the whole fucking folks. box. <laughs> <laughs> there is a tendency, well. which is inevitable unless consciously combated, for organizations to coalesce and so to increase in size until ultimately almost all become merged in the state. That is called corporatism and fascism, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, er. And I would also suggest that that's why Elon Musk owns so many companies. And they're in bed with the government. I mean, SpaceX was going to fold if they didn't get that first government contract way back when now. Yep, and Tesla, they got the government contract, and Neuralink has a government contract, and the Boring Company has government contract. You see how this works, folks? A scientific oligarchy, accordingly, is bound to become what is called totalitarian. That is to say, all important forms of power will become a monopoly of the state. This monolithic system has sufficient merits to be attractive to many people, but to my mind, its demerits are far greater than its merits. For some reason which I have failed to understand, many people like the system when it is Russian, but disliked the very same system when it was German. I was compelled to think that this is due to the power of labels. These people like whatever is labeled left without examining whether the label has any justification. And that was left in quotes. And yeah, in 1952 or three or whatever this is from, he was referencing the left versus the right. Does that seem familiar in 2021? Yeah, I think about that. Whatever's labeled left, these people like whatever's labeled left or progressive without examining whether the label has any justification. Don't we see that today in spades? right now that or at least that's the impression that the uh, media gives you or you know the vast majority of the people that uh, express their opinions uh, would give you and we're still dealing with the the, the left <laughs> in that sense the fascism the socialism the communism all that because that's where all the crazy sjw nutballs hail from all the ones that are now thrilled to the teeth because their democratic boy is in office and when really he's just a, a child molesting pedophile old sniffer not going to do anything good for anybody but anyway, oligarchies throughout past history have always thought more of their own advantage than of that of the rest of the community. 
It would be foolish to be morally indignant with them on this account. Human nature in the main and in the mass is egoistic, and in most circumstances, a fair dose of egoism is necessary for survival. It was revolt against the selfishness of past political oligarchies that produced the liberal movement in favor of democracy, and it was revolt against economic oligarchies that produced socialism. But although everybody who was in any degree progressive recognized the evils of oligarchy throughout the past history of mankind, many progressives were taken in by an argument for a new kind of oligarchy. We the progressives, so runs the argument, are the wise and good. We know what reforms the world needs. If we have power, we shall create a paradise. And so, narcissistically hypnotized by contemplation of their own wisdom and goodness, they proceeded to create a new tyranny, more drastic than any previously known. It is the effect of science in such a system that I wish to consider in this chapter. And by the way, make sure you put your preferred pronouns in your Twitter account. <laughs> Amen. Uh, absolutely. Do you see what he's pointing out here? Uh, they're using the argument for a new kind of oligarchy. Well, you point out to a lot of these, uh, you know, SJW types or these ones that are touting the whole idea they're of ladies. socialism as a good thing. Right. But they, they walk around talking like socialism is a good thing. And you point out to them, hey, you know what? Socialism has never ended well in the history of the entire world anywhere for any length of time. And well, they they just didn't do it right. We know how to do it right now. That's exactly what Bertrand Russell's saying here. <laughs> Many progressives were were taken in by an argument for a new kind of oligarchy. We are the progressives. We know best. We're wise and good. They just haven't done it right yet. That's what their argument is. It's you know historically it always ends the same way in a totalitarian dictatorship, uh, and that's exactly what we've seen time and again through history. Uh, when we allow this stuff to happen and, you know, you point that out to them, they can't see it. They just, you know, they, they think, oh, it just hasn't been done right yet. Well, it's a religion. To we, them too. we could do it right. It's a total religious yeah, you're right. feeling out to them at this point. By the way, <clears throat> the one thing that's being left out here is the fact that these massive totalitarian, totalitarian systems that were put into place that seem to be so wonderful bathing in their gravy, uh, they were put in by covert means with shitloads of money behind the scenes. That part is being left out by Lord Russell. Yeah. Yeah, he is leaving that out right here. That's exactly true, though, too. Uh, they were put in place uh, by people with outside interests, and, and that's another thing that kind of gets overlooked here. Uh, so th they know from studying uh, mankind, the, the psychology of mankind through the ages, how this always, always shakes out in the end. And that's why they, they hedge their bets for oligarchy here, because every other type of uh, a governance system they've put in place has always invariably fallen into this whole idea. And you see that today, uh, even though our country was set up as a representative republic here, uh, now you hear nothing but them talking about how our democracy must prevail. Democracy, democracy. A democracy and a republic are two different things, folks. And democracy is always a precursor for socialism. And socialism is always a precursor for communism. And communism is always a precursor for totalitarianism and dictatorship. It always happens that way. Always has in the entire history of the world. So uh, democracy uh, is a, a code word leading into socialism 
That's what they're talking about. They, they use the words interchangeably. So when you hear our political uh, pundits up there talking about our democracy, keep in mind, folks, uh, the United States of America was never, you know, initially founded and intended to be a pure democracy. No, that's not what we are. It's a representative, it's a representative republic. It's, it's a de- right. The, and the it's, full it's, name it's, is a democratic republic. Right. And that's the major difference. So, um, you know, it, it, I know it, it, people might look at it and, and say, OK, the, yeah, they might be using variances on the words or something. It's all semantics. I don't think so. They use their words very carefully, and a lot of people write their speeches for them and the things they say and utilize these words very carefully. Uh, and once again, and it falls back on the idea of the words have meaning. So when they're talking about democracy, uh, that's that's code talk for socialism, and that's exactly where we're heading in this country, and this is exactly why. Uh, you know, Mr. Russell here laid it out very succinctly here. Uh, whether we want to like go along with what he says here or not that's another story it doesn't matter what we want because we're not the ruling class per se so that that's exactly how they've always done things it's always a a top-down control system and a control network and this is how they they set up this stuff so this is just one way to steer people into going along with it and that's what it's about it's behavior modification essentially Oh, I completely forgot to mention at the top of the show here, uh, the reason why we didn't do a live stream last week was because I met KL in person. He was traveling through this area where I live, and we had a good couple-hour chat. And because of that chat, we're going to be recording him with him again uh, very shortly in the uh, next week or so. And we're going to be talking a lot about the monetary system and get into this great reset and all that. But we, we got into this great conversation on the, the power structure, the monetary, how the, all the financial systems run and all that. And I was like, oh, that's that's a show, man. That's something we've never touched on. We've always focused on the individual, uh, the law and all the, how all that stuff works. So yeah, I was all about this. I, that's the stuff, some of the stuff I find the most fascinating. I love social engineering and I love to know how the power structure actually works because everybody with half a brain knows damn well it's not the government's. Right. The governments are just the, uh, the the puppets on the ends of the strings that they use What's the window uh, dressing? to distract people. Yeah, it's it's the, the facade. Let's put it that it's way. It's more the divide and conquer, too, because it's this country versus that country. The countries don't matter anymore. It's it's all it's a corporatocracy. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, you know, a couple really wealthy people at the top of the power structure own it all. OK, getting back. In the first place, since the new oligarchs are the adherents of a certain creed and base their claim to exclusive power upon the rightness of their creed, their system depends essentially upon dogma. Whoever questions the governmental dogma questions the moral authority of the government and is, therefore, a rebel. While the oligarchy is still new, there are sure to be other creeds held with equal conviction which would seize the government if they could. Such rival creeds must be suppressed by force, since the principle of majority rule has been abandoned. It follows that there cannot be freedom of the press, freedom of discussion, or freedom of book publication. By the way, Wayne, do you want to discuss about freedom of book publication in relation to Wayne McCroy Jr.? Um... I might defer on that for now. I do have a fourth book in the works here that I just began. Uh, no, no, I was talking doing about some the, uh, the fact someone tried to purchase your book. 
oh, the the fact that somebody tried to purchase my book. Um, and was stopped. Yeah. Yeah, that did happen, actually, uh, probably more than once. Um, but uh, I haven't had much issue other than one or two exceptions to that. And I don't know the exact reasoning behind it, but, uh, um, you know, it's it's something that does go on. They do kind of shadow ban different things and uh, block block things from being purchased or discussed. We see that in all the censorship going on right now. Uh, as far as what I was just saying, I, I do have a fourth book in the works. I'm not going to go into the details of much because that one really may have, uh, you know, a very good chance of, of being, you know, shut down before it even gets off the ground if I go into too much detail about it. So, well, I think everybody uh, knows you're working on another book because you're always working on another book. That's what you do. <laughs> you're an author. Yeah, I, you know, it, it takes time, though. So, uh, but at any rate, yeah. Uh, the censorship, that's, that's exactly what uh, Bertrand Russell's talking about right here. You can see there's there's no freedom of the press. There's no actual freedom of the press here, guys. Uh, it's all scripted. It's all 100% talking points handed down by uh, the corporatocracy. Uh, and that's what it's all about. No freedom of discussion. You can see how they, they kind of uh, have taken a, a different alternative to this. Rather than just shutting down speech altogether, they'll kind of siphon us off into our own little private echo chambers all the time. Uh, that's that's one thing that social media has been really exceptional at doing, is uh, you know kind of segmenting us off into our own little echo chambers where we could talk amongst ourselves but really have no major impact on society at large. Uh, and that that's kind of one of the things here that he's talking about. Uh, this is kind of the scientific application of that when you really look at it, the whole uh, engineering of social uh, media sites and stuff like that to segregate people into their own little groups and, and talk among like-minded people there rather than allowing everybody to partake in the conversation or everybody to see uh, the conversation. The algorithms have really kind of sectioned things off really well. So this is part of the the whole science aspect of it, like Bertrand Russell's talking about. This is technocracy at work. Uh, this is what, what it is, segmenting off these people so they make no actual impact, uh, you know, on society at, at large, the public at large. So many of their ideas and stuff are just kept in this own, in their own little echo chambers so that it doesn't really get out for mass consumption of the people. And that's what this is talking about, too. Same thing with uh, book publication. Uh, I've had a couple times where, you know, my, my books, when people look for them, they have a hard time getting them on a search return at times. Uh, and, you know, you have to look for it very specifically. It doesn't really get suggested or grouped in too well with uh, many of the other books unless you know specifically what you're looking for. So uh, that that's challenging, too, for anybody who's, uh, you know, into writing books or, or doing anything like that, producing any kind of material. And you see the same thing going on with YouTube. It's it's slightly different. Uh, not much. It's just that it's it's a different uh, visual or audio form of this freedom of expression or, or the same kind of thing. And you could see how they will they'll they won't give people notifications like, uh, you know, if we're going live and you're subscribed to Jason's channel here, you should get a notification that, uh, hey, Secrets of Saturn just went live. And a lot of people don't get that. <laughs> and, and that no, they get you, unsubscribed see that going instead. On. Right. And that's what I mean. So that's kind of what they're talking about. They've kind of taken this to the next level using the scientific tools that they have and doing it in a covert way so people don't necessarily notice as much. 
And and that's where we're at today. So, I mean, you can see this going on. They've just been a little bit more uh, covert about how they operate with it right now. So that's exactly what he says here uh, when he's talking about uh, uh, there should be no no freedom of discussion, freedom of book publication, freedom of the press, any of that stuff. Well, let's even talk about that. So these three things that he mentions, what's going on? Let me get back here. And what, what order did he put them in? Uh, let's see. Freedom of the press, freedom of discussion, or freedom of book publication. Okay, well, the the press, they've got completely filled with a bunch of liberal nut jobs and, and crazy SJWs and stuff like that. They give these blue-haired land whales these uh, articles to write and all that, and they're nonsensical. Have you ever read an article by a true SJW? It's garbage. It's it's pointless nonsense. <laughs> it's not readable. It, it, yeah, the, and they and their grammar is terrible and their spelling is terrible. It's like, aren't you using a bloody computer? Like, proofread your freaking work. That's something else that bugs me these days. Like, really bugs me. I cannot believe in the technological age we're in, I see so many more grammatical and spelling errors. So basically, non-professional behavior in an age when the goddamn computer will make your coffee for you while you're writing your article. And instead, Ooh, I like, when I was computer. growing up, when we were growing up, you could actually uh, take faith in the fact that, well, it might be at a, an eighth grade level reading the newspaper. There are very few mistakes in there. They actually took pride in that shit. Yeah, and there, there's a big difference. When you look back even like to the 1800s, the level of writing back then was so far superior oh to what god. we see today. Oh, my god. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it really is. It's, it's night and day difference. Uh, so – you know, it, it puts me to shame. Like honestly, I mean, I, I write, uh, I write books, and I, I cannot write to that level that many of these people did back in the eighteen hundreds, and and some of them like were less educated than myself. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of them had maybe an eighth grade education, and they still wrote in a far superior fashion to, than to what I can. Uh, so, and look at I their mean, writing too. You could or, see. I'm sorry, their their penmanship, like the just yeah, <laughs> the level of these people. Crow and I have talked about this a million times. I think he might be on with us finally, uh, but we've talked about this before that these people would speak multiple languages and they'd have multiple courses of study that they were total experts in. Just absolutely out of control behavior, intellectually speaking, compared to the ding dongs that we are today. Oh, absolutely. And you can see how that is all part of the social engineering agenda because, uh, you know, they want us dumbed down. So it's it's more um, gratifying for somebody to, you know, be dumb and, and not know anything. And it's cool to not know anything. You, you remember how it was in high school, Jason, and I'm sure it's even worse today. Yeah. Like, oh, if you, you know, you're, you are a you nerd. Know a little something. You are, you you are, are a teacher's nerd. pet. You're, geek, you're whatever. You know, you're, you're a geek. Yeah. You're you're a loser. Yeah, well, no. because, you know, if you didn't follow the sports ball or whatever and, you know, care about that and, you know, you just wanted to were genuinely interested in learning about the world, well, you know, you didn't fit in. You weren't cool. So and that's kind of part of the social engineering, whereas back uh, if you go back to like the 1800s, it was considered, uh, you know, a very good thing to be knowledgeable about stuff or to be curious about stuff and to learn, to be a learned person. You were held in higher esteem that way. Whereas today we hold ignorance in high esteem as a society. And that's the truth. I mean, look at our, our entertainment in Hollywood. They're dipshits. They, they, <laughs> Let's yeah. just be blunt. They're they, freaking dipshits. They hold ignorance in high esteem. And, the and here's the other thing, are, Wayne, to add to that, who cares 
what, let's say, a professional pretender thinks about whatever, their, their, pol their politics. Why do I give a shit that you get paid $10 million a movie about your political views when all you do is pretend for a living? I don't care what you think. You are literally a hideously overpaid clown. Go dance for me, monkey. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, that, when you look at it from that vantage point, that's the truth. But people idolize these these towers of ignorance like that. Instead of scientists, uh, I mean, instead of people right. who are great thinkers and, and all that. No, that's that's gone. Now, now they're going to idolize incredibly crazy-looking creatures like Little Wayne and I, I, you know, uh, Miley Virus and all those people. Oh, my God, they're just disgusting. <laughs> or, or my favorite, Lady Gaga. She's another one. <laughs> I knew she was oh, trouble from man. the get-go. I, I just yep. – I've gotten to the point where I could just feel when they're – when they're playing for the other team. Like, it's just so obvious. And that was before I knew anything about her. It was just, I could feel the sliminess <laughs> oozing off of her very aura. It was just disgusting beyond all belief. Yeah. And holy shit, have I been proven right in that regard in the, over the past years. Yeah, that's for certain. I know exactly what you mean. She just has that, uh, you know, that aura about her. You could, you could feel something dark uh, connected to her there. So it it's... I don't know, man. She it looks is pretty what it good is. in a meat dress. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Extra rare. All right, let's see where we left off here. Where are you guys? We are on page uh, of the PDF. It would be page 26 of the book. It's 45. Did you page get the file? 45. Hopefully you got the file. Did get you get the stuff? <laughs> Okay, I lost my place. Forgive me for a moment, folks. Here we go. Okay, so it follows that there cannot be freedom of the press, freedom of discussion, or freedom of book publication. And again, we could go on and on and on about how this is being applied today. There must be an organ of government whose duty it is to pronounce as to what is orthodox and to punish heresy. Like I said, make sure you put your pronouns in Twitter or else you're a racist. The history of the Inquisition shows what such an organ of government must inevitably become. In the normal pursuit of power, it will seek out more and more subtle heresies. The Church, as soon as it acquired political power, developed incredible refinements of dogma and persecuted what to us appear microscopic deviations from the official creed. Exactly the same sort of thing happens in the modern states that confine political power to supporters of a certain doctrine. Wear the mask. Wear two masks. Wear three masks. How many masks <laughs> do we have to wear today? <laughs> that's what it is. Get the vaccine. Did you get your vaccine? That, that's another thing that really irks me right now is I see all these people all excited posting, oh, I got my vaccine. I've never seen anything like it. It's like, I got a root canal today. It's a medical procedure. Yeah. Like, are, are you really going to be, like, all happy about it? Oh, do, could I see your root canal card? Like, come on, man. It's It's ridiculous. It really is, but like that just goes to show you just how malleable the minds of the public are to this uh, this programming per se, uh, and that's what it is. It's the social engineering hard at work. They've really compelled people to really follow along with this whole agenda and be happy to do so, and we we see that coming up in spades with this whole thing right now. Now they're talking wearing double masks and everything else. 
It's ridiculous already. It's beyond ridiculous. And any rational mind could look at this and take a step back and say, okay, you know what? This is absolute BS. (laughs) And but people are going along with it because they, they can't make that rational connection anymore. They've just been so manipulated into this, this whole idea that they're they're now they're bought into it. They've been brought into this this dogma, this refinement of dogma, as uh, Bertrand Russell says here, that they they can't let it go now because it's part of what their uh, per, their personality is now, like who they represent themselves as. So it's it, it's all very nefarious when it really comes down to it, in my view. Krogi, you find your spot here? Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. 46. Continuing on. The completeness of the resulting control over opinion depends in various ways upon scientific technique. Where all children go to school and all schools are controlled by the government, the authorities can close the minds of the young to everything contrary to official orthodoxy. That is right, ladies and gentlemen. You get the children and then you've already got the future generations in your hand. Common sense, really. Printing is impossible without paper, and all paper belongs to the state. Broadcasting and the cinema are equally public monopolies. The only remaining possibility of unauthorized propaganda is by secret whispers from one individual to another. But this, in turn, is rendered appallingly dangerous by improvements in the art of spying. Now we walk around with spy devices in our pocket, don't we? Children at school are taught that it is their duty to denounce their parents if they allow themselves subversive utterances in the bosom of the family. No one can be sure that a man who seems to be his dearest friend will not denounce him to the police. The man may himself have been in some trouble and may know that if he is not efficient as a spy, his wife and children will suffer. All this is not imaginary. It is daily and hourly reality. Nor, given oligarchy, is there the slightest reason to expect anything else. Which is why you have Karens getting in people's faces wondering where your masks are. Right, it's a self-policing system when it comes down to it as well, isn't it? And that's exactly what this is talking about here. Uh, this sounds like something right out of 1984 or George Orwell. Totally, Orwell's, completely. Doesn't it? And these guys ran in the same circles, didn't they? So you could kind of see where Orwell got some of the ideas from, huh? Yeah, I think Orwell might have been a few rungs down, but yes, they definitely bumped in and rubbed shoulders with the same kind of elite scum fucks. Well, this yeah, is written, absolutely. This is written prior to the digital age, so now the paper is the binary code. Um, so that's controlled as equally as any of this ever was. <clears throat> People still shudder at the enormities of men like Caligula and Nero, but their misdeeds fade into insignificance beside those of modern tyrants. Except among the upper classes in Rome, daily life was much as usual even under the worst emperors. Caligula wished his enemies had but a single head. How he would have envied Hitler the scientific lethal chambers of Auschwitz. Nero did his best to establish a spy system which would smell our traitors, but a conspiracy defeated him in the end. If he had been defended by the NKVD, he might have died in his bed at a ripe old age. These are a few of the blessings that science has bestowed on tyrants. Oh boy. Something you want to break down there? (laughs) 
These are the blessings that science has bestowed on tyrants. Are tyrants, yeah, are tyrants really worthy of blessings? Like, really? (laughs) You gotta love his choice of words, huh? Consider next the economic system appropriate to an oligarchy. We in England had such a system in the early 19th century. How abominable it was, you can read in the Hammonds books. It came to an end, chiefly owing to the quarrel between landowners and industrialists. Landowners befriended the wage earners in towns, and industrialists befriended those in the country. Between the two, factory acts were passed and the corn laws were repealed. In the end, we adopted democracy, which made a modicum of economic justice unavoidable. In Russia, the development has been different. The government fell into the hands of the self-professed champions of the proletariat, who, as a result of civil war, were able to establish a military dictatorship. Once again, let us point out here that he's leaving out the fact that the thing was heavily funded by the banksters. He's leaving out a lot. Huh? He's leaving out a lot. Exactly, but this is Lord Bertrand Russell. That's what he does. Yeah, on Hitler and, and Auschwitz, he's he's. How do you make a state? How do you, in one breath, say that the media is owned wholesale, and then report what the media said as fact, which is what he's doing with Hitler and Auschwitz, among other things? But you point out the whole reason Russia got whacked is because they pissed off the bankers. Yep. And yeah, that's, that's, that's by, it. By, by royalty, pretty much. Yeah. All right. So it really has it really has nothing to do with with some kind of a you know an uprising in the way he's painting it. Gradually, irresponsible power produced its usual effect. Those who commanded the army and the police saw no occasion for economic justice. Soldiers were sent to take grain by force from starving peasants who died by millions as a result. Wage earners deprived of the right to strike without the possibility of electing representatives to plead their cause were kept down to bare subsistence level. Take a look at China today. The percentage difference between the pay of army officers and that of privates is vastly greater in Russia than in any Western country. Men who hold important positions in business live in luxury. The ordinary employee suffers as much as in England 150 years ago but even he is still among the more fortunate. And by the way, this is written in the early 50s. The gap, the wage gap, is so much bigger now. If he's commenting on this in 1952, oh my God, a a man could support the family, the wife, the two kids, the car, the house, all that, with a half-decent job in the 1950s. You can't freaking do that now without a $100,000 a year more job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You could see exactly... um what he's talking about it's only become a greater disparity in the modern age uh, this was written i think 1952 published in 53 yeah um so like it, you're looking at this this is from the perspective of the early 1950s just post-world war ii uh before we had the counterculture revolution in the 60s and all of the uh nonsense that came as a result of that later and and moving up uh through the decades and stuff here uh, and he's talking about this stuff back then, like the way things actually sh- shook out um, after the fact, after he wrote this in a lot of different ways. And he's talking about in, in Russia as like one of the models he's speaking of here. Uh, 
and you got to remember that's the old Soviet system, like you know that really came online in the uh, early 1950s, right after post World War II era, and you know the whole concept of the Cold War. He's talking about that whole idea, and he knows an awful lot about uh, life over in Russia under this old uh, Iron Curtain bit, doesn't he? Because he was very well traveled, yep. and not only that, I would say he's one of the people that formulated a lot of the. Uh, the, the planning for these uh, big banksters. So that, that would be my take on that's it. First, that's definitely who he hung out with in social clubs. Can you guys carry this for one second? I left my water, and I'm going to go grab it. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, yeah, have you done any reading on uh, Bertrand Russell there, Crow? Very little, and it's been a while. Um, nothing modern. Yeah, I mean, he, he was, like, uber-connected with with everybody he was even down to having royal titles and stuff like that uh and his lineage uh he, he was one of the movers and shakers for sure um on his in his time that, that he was alive here uh, i think he died in 1970 i think is what i i had read um so he he lived to an, a ripe old age as well but uh he he was a, a real uh motivator in a lot of things going that went on in the world here in the 20th century uh, he the, had was, his hands the, in a lot what was the point of this one what was the, the point of this this yeah the, the one you're drawing from if he's holding patent from what british royalty is that where his patent comes from yeah yeah so yeah, that, what do you suppose the yeah oh really yeah. um i didn't even consider that um what do you suppose the purpose of this one is well this book, you mean? Yeah. What's the purpose for writing this book? Uh, this is called The Impact of Science on Society. This is actually an outline for things the, to come. The double, double reverse, where it looks like he's yeah. commiserating, but he's actually touting what's That's been done. That's exactly it. Yep. He's actually touting what's been done and what they are going to do, too, at this point when he actually wrote this. Because this is, you know, kind of a, a foreshadowing of, of things to come later. Uh, well, well, it's it's ironic in the play in the part we just read after he made the accurate claim that even paper is basically owned by most governments, never mind, you know, the theaters and everything else. And then he cites the history of World War Two straight off the newsreel. Um, so well, it's kind of a tell. But m probably when this was written, nobody knew any better. No, that's the thing. I mean, you're talking this is early 1950s. This is just post World War Two. So very much the people of the world and especially the Americans uh, trusted the media to tell the truth. Right. And, and trusted these people. They, they put a lot of trust and faith in government institutions and in the media as well. You know, the fourth estate. Well, um, when I was young, the most trusted man in America, they claimed, was Walter Cronkite, the guy who lied to us about JFK. Yeah. And that's the thing. But at this point people largely were not aware of anything underhanded going on with all of that. Right. Uh, they, they weren't aware of the contrived nature of just exactly what it was and how this was more or less, uh, you know, a type of propaganda. And now we, we kind of see through that, but we still have the vast majority of the American people can't really see the propaganda for what it is, but it's all propaganda at this point. It I is. mean, they, they were a little more subtle back in the 1950s and stuff with this stuff and people didn't really pick up on it, but now it's just blatant and people don't pick up on it. Just goes to show how far the mind has fallen since then. 
I, so, I don't think, yeah, for long, I mean, it's sad to say, but the ones that don't catch on will just kind of join the zombie apocalypse, right? They'll roll up their sleeves and come what may. Yeah, and you can see how people just largely go along with whatever narrative just to kind of fit in because everybody else is doing it. And that's kind of where we got. Uh, it's the sheep mentality. <laughs> so uh, we're all going to be herded into the same uh, holding pen and eventually to the slaughter. If, if we keep going along with that mentality. And thankfully, though, I do see there's a lot of people waking up uh, to these different ideas now. But uh, going back to uh, Bertrand Russell here, at this point, it was still in the planning phases, like a, a lot of what's going on today. It was in the planning phases, and they were actively socially engineering uh, that generation and the generations to come after that. Uh, to eventually arrive at where we are today. So you can see how this is kind of a generational thing as it, as it goes down. The, the, they ramp up the social engineering uh, with each progressive generation. And uh, they, they've totally got us changed in our thought patterns from the way that the, the folks in the 1950s were. Like our grandparents, uh, that generation that's often referred to as the greatest generation, I don't think they would be walking around wearing masks right now and uh, waiting for the government to come give them this this miracle shot uh, <laughs> to cure them of this oh so deadly not so fearful uh, virus per se. Uh, so th they they would see through it and they would call it out for what it is. And we, we don't have that going on today because we've been generationally engineered in a different fashion to capitulate to these ideas and to trust, even though we know not to trust the authority figures, we've been kind of steered in this direction that we should do that just so as not to go against the social norm. And and that's kind of where we've fallen as a society. I mean, just, just look how far we've come with this whole social engineering thing, how we've been just kind of uh, molded into these very passive people that we are. It's really a sad state of affairs. Uh, people will just capitulate to whatever the uh, authority figure says to them at this point. And this is exactly what uh, Bertrand Russell was talking about engineering in people. And we'll, we'll see as we go on here uh, some of the methods that they use to do so. Jason, are you back yet? I sure am. I, I thought I heard you there. Crow, do we need to take a minute to make an announcement for a request for assistance for Alphonse? Oh, uh, we did it in the episode, but um, Alphonse needs help with a, uh, a WordPress website that he's finishing off to help people with free, free chat rooms and free documents uh, to deal with legal issues. Anyone who wants to help with WordPress has to have experience and be able to prove it. And they're going to get vetted because we have no way to know who's listening or what motive they might help or have. <laughs> and Alphonse um, is certainly but, shaking the tree, that's for sure. Yeah, well, if you're going to screw someone over, that'd be about the last guy I think I'd aim at. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> but, but I think I'm pretty sure we go over this in the episode that gets released this evening or tonight late. We did briefly, but I thought uh, maybe the possibility exists of a slightly different audience, so... Let's say it it's, anyway. it's, yeah, it's nothing too crazy. It's just typical WordPress work. Um, but I, I just don't have the time. And so, uh, if someone can deal with WordPress and they can prove they're a decent human being, um, and they want to volunteer their time. 
Yeah, and they want to volunteer time. I don't. It's it's mostly built, as far as I know. Uh, as far as I know, it's just going to have the inline chat that is endemic to the software and a doc repository. So I guess you'd be setting up the the downloads plugin, which is also endemic. All right. So if anybody wants to be cool, we'd love to hear from you. Let's move back to the to the book here. Underneath the system of so-called free labor, there is another, the system of forced labor in concentration camps. And once again, I'd like to point out modern China. The life of the victims of this system is unspeakable. The hours are unbearably long, the food only just enough to keep the laborers alive for a year or so, the clothing in an Arctic winter so scanty that it would barely suffice in an English summer. Men and women are seized in their homes in the middle of the night. There is no trial, and often no charge is formulated. They disappear, and inquiries by their families remain unanswered. After a year or two in northeast Siberia or on the shores of the White Sea, they die of cold, overwork, and undernourishment. But that causes no concern to the authorities. There are plenty more to come. Yeah, and that does this, sum up China, this, doesn't it? Well, this whole thing kind of smacks a poppycock, too. Because if if the idea is you're going to snatch people for labor, why would you not do what you could to make them a good laborer? See, the picture they're painting here is a person who's barely on the edge of death. What good is the labor from an individual like that? Um, uh, you know, it's like Dave J used to say about all wars. I'm calling poppycock on the face of it because what they're saying is people are so throwaway that what we're going to do is go get these people to work for us. We're going to treat them so poorly that they're going to die in another year. But who cares? We can go get some more. It makes no sense because then more labor is required to go get more people to fend off more inquiries about all the missing people. It just doesn't hold water. Logically, if this was going to be true, you would grab the people and feed them plenty and give them plenty of good clothes so that they would do the labor that you're trying to get them to do. I'm just saying. Well, who knows what happened 70 years ago, but I think it goes without saying that we know this is going on in Chinese factories. They're not literal slaves, but they're paid very little, enabling mega corporations to take advantage of the stupidly cheap labor. 15 cents an hour compared to $15 an hour, for instance. And we know this goes on, or else these companies wouldn't be taking advantage of it. That's true, but in China you also have a bit more of a caste system than you'll find in a lot of places. Um, you're not going to find certain, I don't know whether it's correct to call them a tribe, but certain types of Chinese people will never be in that situation. What's going to happen is the people are going to come to the cities from the fields and the farms um, and be mistreated. But I would also point out that China is probably infinitely more upward mobile than we are um, at certain levels of the middle class. As a matter of fact, we don't have much of a middle class, so that's almost certainly true. It's it's stark reality on both ends of the spectrum, but I think in China's case, the caste system is playing a big part. And once again, that points to the whole idea of oligarchy, as Mr. Russell here uh, so succinctly defined it. Uh, that's what it is. It's It falls into the caste system type of an idea again. So if you're not of uh, noble birth or, you know, however they want to view it or, you know, you're not of this certain stock, um, then they don't have any qualms with treating you terribly. And uh, there it is, because yeah. if you have if you have a patent like you're telling me Russell did, 
um, from the House of Russell, and there is any kind of a caste system, spoken or unspoken, the truth is the further down the rungs of society you go, a patented mind will care less and less and less till you get to the bottom. Right, and that's what it's all about here, and that's what they've steered into uh, reality here is the whole oligarchical idea behind this technocracy system. There's another there's another truth lacking in that claim he makes, too. If you treat people that badly, there comes a point when dying seems preferable to living. And at that point, all bets are off the table. Those are desperate people, and desperate people are harder to control. Um, I'm just saying, uh, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm sure this has gone on in our world, but I'm not sure I'm buying this outline. This terrible system is rapidly growing. The number of people condemned to forced labor is a matter of conjecture. Some say that 16% of the adult males in the USSR are involved, and all competent authorities, except the Soviet government and its friends, are agreed that it is at least 8%. Now again, this is from the early 1950s. The proportion of women and children, though large, is much less than that of adult males. Inevitably, I'll, I'll pause right there. Hold on. Uh, th that tells me exactly what uh, Russell is going for here. This is just to kind of uphold that whole Cold War mentality. There you go. Here. That's yeah, what this go. is about. Uh, they're they're not the same as us. They're not human like we are. They they treat people terrible. You see how he'll create this false dichotomy. Go. That's what go. he's doing here. That's why he's talking about it in this way. Yeah, I'm with you there. All right, uh, I just lost my place. Right, there's there's people in this world that aren't really quite people, so you don't have to think of them like they're people or human beings. Inevitably, in, man, let's try that again. Inevitably, forced labor, because it is economical, is favorably viewed by the authorities and tends by its competition to depress the condition of free laborers. In the nature of things, unless the system is swept away, it must grow until no one is outside it except the army, the police, and government officials. Well, let's be honest here, that, that's not sustainable. He... <laughs> well, there's, there's another problem with this whole... Uh, Wayne just painted... Exactly. This is propaganda to fuel a mindset. And here's how Which you know it. Which was just really taking off in 1952 when this was written. Well, think yep. about... Think about the reality of someone coming to power in any major country. The first thing you have is access to good information or as good as the information could be, right? You're in charge. You're at the top, which means you can look back through history. So do you suppose the communist regime knew that they were going to be around for such a short while? They were not here that long. You see what I'm getting at here? So you can easily, if, if you're going to write a paper like this on science and logic it all out, and I'm with Wayne all day, this is a double reverse. It's meant to look, you know, look at all these atrocities. And what it is, is a playbook. It's a look what we can pull off with science book more accurately, I think. But my point being is if you have good information, the first thing you're going to do is the idea of what the World Takeover did. They took apart the fall of Rome, supposedly, and tried to identify what were the main things that allowed a place like that to come apart. And that's part of what's being applied to us now. So anyone who is in charge of a country would at least have decent enough information to look back through the power centers and how long they lasted and why they came apart, right? So you probably would avoid making those mistakes over and over and over. It's a bit like the people going for the brass ring right now. The overreach is astounding. There's no way it lasts. From the standpoint of the national economy, the system has great advantages. 
it has made possible the construction of the Baltic White Sea Canal and the sale of timber in exchange for machinery. It has increased the surplus of labor available for war production. By the terror that it inspires, it has diminished disaffection. But these are small matters compared to what, we are told, is to be accomplished in the near future. Atomic energy is to be employed. So at least it is said. <laughs> I like how he puts that in there. To divert there the waters is. of the river Yensieri, uh, which now flow fruitlessly into the Arctic, so as to cause <laughs> them to bestow, bestow fertility on a vast desert region in Central Asia. Oh my, how they love to drop the hints in there, don't they? Well, this proves what Wayne's saying about who this is really written for, because you and I just read this as, well, probably people in the know just chuckled because they know there's no such thing as nukes. Yeah, there you go. There it is. There you go. There there I is. would say that that is very much a uh, veiled reference to that. So at least it is said. He puts in parentheses there. Yeah. <laughs> These guys crack also, me up, man, I'll tell you. Well, it also shows the complete nonsensical nature of what he's trying to prove, that science is the be-all and end-all. No river is fruitlessly going anywhere and doing nothing. All rivers in nature are doing something and going somewhere, right? So that's another tell about what's being claimed here. But if, when this work is completed, Russia is still subject to a small despotic aristocracy, Aristocracy. <laughs> there is no reason to expect that the masses will be allowed to benefit. It will be found that radioactive spray can be used to melt the polar ice, or that a range of mountains in northern Siberia would divert the cold north winds and be constructed at a cost in human misery which would not be thought excessive. And whenever other ways of disposing of the surplus fail, there is always war. So long as the rulers are comfortable, what reason have they to improve the lot of their serfs? I think the evils that have grown up in Soviet Russia will exist, in a greater or lesser degree, wherever there is a scientific government which is securely established and is not dependent upon popular support. It is possible nowadays for a government to be very much more oppressive than any government could be before there was scientific technique. Propaganda makes persuasion easier for the government. Pop public ownership of halls and paper makes counter-propaganda more difficult. And the effectiveness of modern armaments makes popular risings impossible. No revolution can succeed in a modern country unless it has the support of at least a considerable section of the armed forces. But the armed forces can be kept loyal by being given a higher standard of life than that of the average worker, and this is made easier by every step in the degradation of ordinary labor. Thus, the very evils of the system help to give it stability. Apart from external pressure, there is no reason why such a regime should not last for a very long time. So here he is talking to his other boys down to the social club about how they're going to do things, right? Yep, there it is. This is the playbook. Uh, and, you know, he wrote about, uh, you know, how, how grievous some of these things were in the Soviet Union and this and that and the other thing. And trying to make it look like, uh, you know, he's, he's speaking out against this stuff when, in fact, he's part of the planning committees that go along with this. And he's laying out the groundwork for how this is done and what to do. 
It's the old double reverse, like Crow said. It's exactly what it is. He puts this stuff, puts pen to paper, puts these ideas out there, acting like, uh, you know, they're appalling, but, uh, you know, at the same time, they're very efficient. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is what it's about. He's he's setting it up. He's saying we can learn from the mistakes of, you know, this regime or that regime, and uh, there's no reason why we can't make a a regime that could last for a very long time using these techniques and uh, using the oligarchy as the model for it and doing so in a scientific way. This is called technocracy. That's what it is. Okay. I just lost my place again because I'm a dingbat. Let's <laughs> see. I moved my damn document. <laughs> That's right. what happens when you go moving documents. I know. Well, the next paragraph opens with the tell. You know, you could really yeah. almost mark as the real misuse of science coming to the fore. You know, it's where I place the modern edit. What are we talking? 20s, 30s, something like this when it gets started. And here Bertrand Russell's claiming scientific societies are yet in their infancy. He's telling you the truth. He wrote this, what, 50s? Yep, this is uh, written in 1952, came out in 53. The misuse of science as we see it now has not been around that long, a, a little bit longer than I've been alive, maybe a lifetime and a half for me, something like that. Scientific societies are as yet in their infancy. Infancy. It may be worthwhile to spend a few moments in speculating as to possible future developments of those that are oligarchies. It is to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have even in totalitarian countries, especially when you, they convince you that there's a bullshit virus out there wiping everybody off the face of the planet. Fichi laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Well, we don't need no education. But in his day, this was an unattainable ideal. What he regarded as the best system in existence produced Karl Marx. In future, such failures are not likely to occur where there is dictatorship. Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable, and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. What do you mean you don't want to take the vaccine? Even if all are miserable, all will believe themselves happy because the government will tell them that they are so because everything will go back to the new normal as long as you take the vaccine. <laughs> Let's read that again for people. This is for the kids in the back. Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. There it is. And let's break That's apart what those three things are. So diet. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead. Yeah, let's talk about why he put that in there. Diet, okay, so where are we at today? At least in the Western world, a lot of the food that we eat is garbage. It's not nutritious. It's mass-produced mass chemical crap. Uh, to say it's the same least. If you want, if you well. and if you want something good, quote unquote organic, what or non-GMO, what have you, you're going to pay double, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's also the water, right? That's the whole poisoning the water thing that's been going on for quite a while now. Yep, I have to have a $300 filter to have water that isn't complete and utter, utter nasty shit. But anyway, so injections. Well, I think that one is pretty obvious. The, the, the medicine... I think it's self-explanatory. I'm sorry? I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Injections, yes. Yeah, vaccines. Get your um, flu shot. You know, medicines. Get your flu shot. Go get your COVID shot. Did you get your second COVID shot? Did you? you could I see your COVID you might need card? A third. Where's your papers? Where's your papers? You might need a third one now. Yeah, they might have to do updates, periodic updates. They're calling them like software type updates now, uh, for you know the 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 new coming uh, new strains of this stupid thing that they're talking about. Uh, it, it's it's just. We predicted all this stuff, like, you know, any of us out there in the truth movement that's been talking about this stupid thing for a long time. We've been telling people all along, yeah, they'll roll out the stupid vaccine. It's not going to do anything. You're still going to have to wear the stupid mask. You're still going to have to follow the stupid rules. And they'll double down on the stupid rules. And then they'll say that there's a new strain of it and they need a new vaccine. And they'll just keep doubling down on it. That's exactly what they're doing. And people still are going along with it and believe it. It's it's just incredible. But that's neither here nor there. We're getting off topic now. Well, we got you, one more. You guys got junctions. You guys got to you got to carry for a minute. I got to take Blix out. I'll be back. Oh, Blix. Okay. So injunctions. Well, let's just sum that up with all the crazy laws, and the amount of laws that existed in in the Western world in the fifties are probably minuscule compared to the insanity going on today. I mean, come on, they're they're completely and utterly restricting the Second Amendment as far as the United States is concerned, doing their best to take that away. They're definitely stomping all over our free speech and all that because the government won't even step in when something like, say, YouTube just takes away your free speech and takes away everything because they feel like it and they're not covered under the First Amendment for some strange reason because they're all I, I would also add, I think the... I think the injunctions thing is something a little bit more subtle, too. Uh, you know, kind of socially engineering what the social norms are. And you see that with the whole mask wearing thing. You mean, oh, if you're not your wearing the mask, pronouns you're on Twitter? What's that? You mean, put your preferred yeah. pronouns in Twitter. This is a social norm. Same thing. Right. What? You don't exactly like transgender people? Yeah, this is the injunctions. That, that's what it is. It's not necessarily like, say, a law or anything like that. It, it's just something to make you behave differently. It's a behavior modification strategy. That's what the injunction is. That's what he's talking about. Diet, injections, and injunctions. We're going to break down your physical person. We're going to break down your emotional well-being as well. And we'll break down your spiritual well-being. That's and that's exactly that. what they're doing. Yeah. <sighs> All right, moving on. A totalitarian government with a scientific bent might do things that to us would seem horrifying. By the way, that's technocracy. The Nazis were more scientific than the present rulers of Russia and were more inclined towards the sort of atrocities that I have in mind. They were said, I do not know with what truth, to use prisoners in concentration camps as material for all kinds of experiments, some involving death after much pain. If they had survived, they would probably have soon taken to scientific breeding. Any nation which adopts this practice will, within a generation, secure great military advantages. So he's saying that, that he's kind of behind that, huh? The system, eugenics all the way, man. Eugenics, yeah, exactly. That's what he's saying. The system, one may surmise, will be something like this. Except possibly in the governing aristocracy, all but 5% of males 
and 30% of females will be sterilized. The 30% of females will be expected to spend the years from 18 to 40 in reproduction in order to secure adequate cannon fodder. As a rule, artificial insemination will be preferred to the natural method. The unsterilized, if they desire the pleasures of love, will usually have to seek them with sterilized partners. Well, considering this didn't exist on the earth when he wrote this, he seems to be awfully informed, doesn't he? Yeah, you would think so, wouldn't you? Um, I would say that's because he's part of the planning <laughs> of of this whole situation. I, I would think that that's what's going on here. And you could see how, uh, you know, the the fertility rates have dramatically dropped in recent years. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this. The same reasons that we mentioned in the previous paragraph there. Diet, injections, and injunctions. And they all contribute to this. So whether people realize it or not, we've been socially engineered to this state where there's uh, very few people actually reproducing. Uh, 5% of the males and 30% of the females, it says here. All but 5% and 30% will be sterilized. And I would argue that uh, many of us have been, you know, fairly effectively sterilized at this point. Um, it, it certainly looks to be part of the planning. And we, we've taken this apart uh, in the population episode we did uh, back way back when, talking about uh, how they use this whole contrived idea of... Uh, you know, there's not enough resources and this artificial scarcity that they create and that kind of thing and, and talking about overpopulation when we could look and show that the population numbers don't add up to what they claim. And, you know, we see that going on here today where with the populations dropping off. They've gone past that point where uh, the replacement numbers don't outpace the, the amount of deaths in the, the different uh, different types of uh, races or uh, different types of nationalities and that kind of thing. So you can see it's, it looks to me like it's been engineered that way that uh, largely uh, we're heading towards reduced populations more so than, you know, increased population like they claim is going on. Okay. Sires will be chosen for various qualities, some for muscle, others for brains. All will have to be healthy, and unless they are to be the fathers of oligarchs, they will have to be of a submissive and docile disposition. Children will, as in Plato's Republic, be taken from their mothers and reared by professional nurses. Gradually, by selective breeding, the congenital differences between rulers and ruled will increase until they become almost different species. Uh, the time machine is an example of the oligarchs, the elite saying like this is the way they would like to see things go by the way a revolt of the plebs would become as unthinkable as an organized insurrection of sheep against the practice of eating mutton the aztecs kept a domesticated alien tribe for purposes of cannibalism their regime was totalitarian to those accustomed to the system the family as we know it would seem as queer as the tribal and totem organization of australian aborigines seem to us Freud would have to be rewritten, and I incline to think that Adler would be found more relevant. I don't know what the reference to that is, so we'll have to see if uh, either of you two do. 
The laboring class would have such long hours of work and so little to eat that their desires would hardly extend beyond sleep and food. The upper class, being deprived of the softer pleasures, both by the abolition of the family and by the supreme duty of devotion to the state, would acquire the mentality of ascetics. They would care only for power, and in pursuit of it would not shrink from cruelty. By the practice of cruelty, men would become hardened, so that worse and worse tortures would be required to give the spectators a thrill. So, I don't know who Adler is. Do you guys know who Adler is? I've heard the name Adler before, and I know he's uh, was a, uh, a psychologist, much like Freud or Jung. I haven't really read anything about his work, um, so I'm not exactly sure what he's trying to imply here. Uh, you know, thinking that Adler would be found more relevant. Um, I'm not sure what Adler's work really was. So I, I can't really comment on that, I don't think. I don't know, is Crowback? He might know. He might have heard the name before. All right. I guess not. We'll just move on. Such yeah. possibilities on any large scale may seem a fantastic nightmare, but I firmly believe that if the Nazis had won the last war, and if in the end they had acquired world supremacy, they would before long have established just such a system as I have been suggesting. They would have used Russians and Poles as robots, and when their empire was secure, they would have used also Negroes and Chinese. Western nations would have been converted into becoming collaborationists by the methods practiced in France from 1940 to 1944. So he's admitting that happened. That wasn't common knowledge in the 1950s. 30 years of these methods would have left the West with little inclination to rebel. I think they would have had trouble taking over the United States, just my opinion, but... Yeah, I think so, too, especially back then. But, you know, after, you know, how many decades of social engineering, uh, they're having an easy go of it right now, aren't they? So you could kind of see Yeah, that. because they're but doing it through through total social engineering and propaganda. They're not doing it through force. Right. And uh, that goes back to, uh, you know, other different ideas that happened in the 1950s, not necessarily related to Russell here, but he may have had some say in that as well. But uh, different factions in the 1950s uh, decided that uh, another full-scale war um, of the, uh, the the size and scope of, of World War II would not be such a great idea for garnering control. So they decided to go with more subtle means. And this happened at a secret meeting in Yalta uh, between three of the big players at the end of World War II. So uh, this kind of idea was brought to the forefront there. Instead of going all-out war, they'll play up this whole Cold War idea and uh, be competitive with each other and use other subversive means to uh, steer the public into capitulation with these different ideas rather than going with all-out war and carnage. Uh, they, they discovered it would be far too uh, expensive and uh, far too destructive uh, in order to get the things that they wanted to do that again. That's that's one of the lessons that they learned from this whole World War II experience. So uh, many of the power players in the world at that point decided, let's go for more covert means of doing this. And that's kind of largely where uh, a lot of these different new uh, scientific type methods and technocracy ideas came from. So 
Um, what else did he say here? He was talking about uh, uh, the collaborationists in France in ninth, from 1940 to 44. Uh, 30 years of these methods would have left the West with little inclination to rebel. That's what he says here. Is that where we left off? Yeah. Yeah. To prevent these scientific horrors, democracy is necessary, but not sufficient. There must be also that kind of respect for the individual that inspired the doctrine of the rights of man. As an absolute theory, the doctrine cannot be accepted. As Bentham said, rights of man, nonsense. Imprescriptible? I don't know. That. Imprescriptible. Imprescriptible. That's an interesting word. Imprescriptible rights of man, nonsense on stilts. We must admit that there are gains to the community so great that for their sake it becomes right to inflict an injustice on an individual. This may happen, to take an obvious example, if a victorious enemy demands hostages as the price of not destroying a city. The city authorities, not of course the enemy, cannot be blamed in such circumstances if they deliver the required number of hostages. It's interesting that, it, once again, his little in parentheses jab in the eye here, implying that, that things will be all set up in advance. They already have it worked out. Precisely, yeah. And you can see how he's uh, using like this, this idea and talking about it as if, oh, this is you know an atrocious thing. But uh, then he's also kind of uh, suggesting that uh, it, it justifies their actions. See, he says this, the city authorities, not, of course, the enemy, cannot be blamed in such circumstances. So, see, he's coming up with justifications for the actions, and that's kind of what he's talking about here. In general, the rights of man must be subject to the supreme consideration of the general welfare. But having admitted this, we must go on to assert, and to assert emphatically, that there are injuries which it is hardly ever in the general interest to inflict on innocent individuals. The doctrine is important because the holders of power, especially in an oligarchy, will be much too prone on each occasion to think that this is one of those cases in which the doctrine should be ignored. By the way, thank you, Rose. She found this on Adler. Austrian psychotherapist. His emphasis on the importance of feelings of inferiority, the inferiority complex, is recognized as an isolating element which plays a key role in personality development. Yeah, well, they did a good job of that today, didn't they? <laughs> Yipper. Okay. Totalitarianism has a theory as well as a practice. As a practice, it means that a certain group, having by one means or another seized the apparatus of power, especially armaments and police, proceed to exploit their advantageous position to the utmost by regulating everything in the way that gives them the maximum of control over others, because Black Lives Matter. But as a theory, it is something different. It is the doctrine that the state or the nation or the community is capable of a good different from that of individuals and not consisting of anything that individuals think or feel. This doctrine was especially advocated by Hegel, Hegel of the Hegelian doctor, uh, dialectic. Dialectic. Okay. Yep, that's the, the one. Word out, who glorified the state and thought that a community should be as organic as possible. In an organic community, he thought, excellence would reside in the whole. An individual is an organism, and we do not think that this that his separate parts have separate goods. If he has a pain in his great toe, it is he that suffers, not specially the great toe. 
So in an organic society, good and evil will belong to the whole rather than the parts. This is the theoretical form of totalitarianism. The difficulty about this theory is that it extends illegitimately the analogy between a social organism and a single person as an organism. The government, as opposed to its individual members, is not sentient. It does not rejoice at a victory or suffer at a defeat. When the body politic is injured, whatever pain is to be felt must be felt by its members, not by it as a whole. With the body of a single person, it is otherwise. All pains are felt at the center. If the different parts of the body had pains that the central ego did not feel, they might have their separate interests and need a parliament to decide whether the toes should give, should give way to the fingers or the fingers to the toes. As this is not the case, a single person is an ethical unit. Neither parts of a person nor organizations of many persons can occupy the same position of ethical importance. The good of a multitude is a sum of the goods of the individuals composing it, not a new and separate good. In concrete fact, when it is pretended that the state has a good different from that of the citizens, what is really meant is that the good of the government or of the ruling class is more important than that of other people. Such a view can have no basis except an arbitrary power. Yep. And you could see kind of what he's pointing out here. This this explains why we have the whole Hegelian dialectic uh, system that we have with our political party. He mentioned Hegel up here, who he you know regarded highly apparently, and uh, you know he also talks here about when the body politic is injured, whatever pain is to be felt must be felt by its members, not by it as a whole. So see when you know. Uh, uh, Sniffy the Wonder Corpse gets in office, then the Republican side suffers. But, uh, you know, that, that part of the body politic suffers, but not the whole country per se. Uh, and the same thing if you, you get, uh, you know, the, the bad orange man in there, uh, the, the leftist crowd is the ones that, that suffered the most under that whole regime. So you could see how uh, he's pointing out this obvious fact here that it, it doesn't exactly sum up to the same type of a thing is like a, an individual organism would. So the, this whole social system is uh, more of a, a control mechanism per se than it is as an actual uh, embodiment of the will of the people. So that being said, one side can take control over it and, uh, you know, have different kinds of, of, of power with it. And this is exactly how an oligarchy would operate. You have your ruling class that kind of steers uh, whatever agendas it wants by using the body politic to do that. And that's why we have the two-party system. And like I said, he seems to really uh, keep Hegel in high regard up there when he was talking about Hegel. And that's exactly one of the, the you know, methods that they, they use for control is this Hegelian dialectic keep the uh, the two parties separated along different lines and you know it's the whole divide and conquer strategy and that's what it is keep them infighting and in the while they're infighting amongst themselves they won't notice what you're doing as the uh, controlling faction the controlling power that that's really in charge at the top of things they'll just keep blaming each side or blame the other back and forth constantly and uh, while they're bickering back and forth about whose fault it is or who did this or who did that, then, you know, the real people making the, 
the calls are still rolling the agenda forward and they they do so without much notice and you know the only thing that happens is the pundits on the uh, on the television just start to uh, bicker and back and forth and fighting amongst themselves and blaming the other and it's it's all for show and that's what he's pointing out here like this this is here here it is these are these are the puppets this is the theater for you to watch and well you know the theater is going on and you're watching the show we'll go ahead and roll out our agenda we being the the ruling class and that's what he, he's pointing out here uh, and he says such a view can have no basis except in arbitrary power and that's what it is more important than these metaphysical speculations is the question whether a scientific dictatorship, such as we have been considering, can be stable or is more likely to be stable than a democracy. Apart from the danger of war, I see no reason why such a, re why such a regime should be unstable. After all, most civilized and semi-civilized countries known to history have had a large class of slaves or serfs completely subordinate to their owners. My, it almost sounds like he's okay with it, doesn't he? There's nothing in human nature that makes the persistence of such a system impossible, and the whole development of scientific technique has made it easier than it used to be to maintain a despotic rule of a minority. When the government controls the distribution of food, its power is absolute, so long as it can count on the police and the armed forces and their loyalty can be secured by giving them some of the privileges of the governing class. I do not see how any internal movement of revolt can ever bring freedom to the oppressed in a modern scientific dictatorship. And here we are 70 years later. Yeah, man, like, listen to what he's saying there. Um, when the government controls the distribution of food, its power is absolute. You, you see, and you know why is Bill Gates buying up all the farmland now? Uh, why why is Monsanto, uh, you know, patenting uh, different uh, different corn crops and things like that? So if uh, if some of their their seed or you know from their corn crop spreads on a private farmer's land, they could turn around and sue that private farmer because it's their patented corn that he's growing there because it crossbreeds with his and it, it, this stuff goes on and it, it's it's just so deep and involved but this is exactly what it's about here it, it's all about this whole idea of total absolute control and we need to pay attention to that food idea because uh, that's coming down the pike really soon where government is going to control absolutely control the food supply and when they do that they got gotcha. you and that's well, why they're trying the job to of chopping away all the farms. I mean, think about right. how, how much, how things used to be different. Uh, not even a hundred years ago, fifty years ago. Think about the, the amount of people that could sustain themselves compared to now, where the grocery stores, uh, in an hour, are sold out of toilet paper because people freak the fuck out. Yeah, and that's that, that's all logistics and supply chain stuff as well. And uh, if they're controlling all of this, the distribution of food, well, they got you where they want you because you'll do what they say if you're starving, you know, and that's Absolutely. that's the bottom line. So and they'll use that also to control the police and armed forces, too. So that's the same kind of thing. Hey, you want you want food for your family this week? You'll you'll do this. You'll enforce this this policy and that kind of thing. Well, this is already happening to a small degree. For instance, why all the dipshit celebrities 
why are they going along with all this stuff? They can't all be morons. I, I mean, I doubt that they're all morons. They'd at least they're under contract. They don't even own their own persona, right? Yeah, and they and they like the lives. They it's it's what he's been talking about in this document that they like the lives. They're living a better life. Why would they want to lose it? Don't buck the system. Just go along to get along. Say what you want amongst your friends and family. Who cares? But publicly, you are the spokesperson for the system. Well, it's a bit worse than that when you're under contract, right? Because if you break the contract, there's going to be penalties. So it's not just you'll go work at 7-Eleven. It's something worse than that. Well, and it just means by the they way, got them you even can better. See, you, can, you, you open when I got in here by talking about the hierarchy. You can certain names in Hollywood, like a good one is Tom Hanks. You hear that name, you know you're looking at, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Bloodline, Insider, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, you're looking at a top or a higher echelon of involvement. Um, it's different than other people that you see. You know, what was it we heard about Hanks? Oh, yeah, he's going to give his blood so they could help make a vaccine, right? Um, it goes on and on and on. But in this day and age, I would be surprised to understand anyone famous at any level in the music industry or Hollywood uh, even owns their own persona. And this plays into the Prince thing, right? As a matter of fact, one of the people I saw outline it better than anyone else was Dave J. Fame is on loan. So think about this. You come to be famous. The person who's bestowing fame on you knows he's making you almost like a king of a kind for some period of time. It's on loan. You got to give that shit back, right? There's the story of Prince. There's the story of Elvis. There's the story of the big bopper. There's the story of almost everyone I can think of. Um, it's on loan at that level of fame. And everyone is not famous at that level, but everyone famous at any level is under contract. Um, so I think you could question, does Eminem own the persona Eminem? Does that belong to him? I would suggest to you that it probably does not. It's on loan to him. Dave J was in the chat right, room, and... by the way. Did you say hi? Oh, I didn't notice. I've been coming in and out. The dog's been giving me a tough time tonight. Um, Dave J, word. He's not messing around. Nope. Go ahead, Wayne. Uh, I was going to say, you'll, you'll notice that... Uh... Many of them in the Hollywood circles and stuff, they pretty much fit right into this mold. They they like having these certain privileges and stuff that that they could have. They they have some of the rights of the uh, the ruling class per se. They they give them these certain freedoms uh, to a certain level. They have a better quality of life and they could enjoy that quality of life, but they better not buck the system. And they're under contract and they're obligated, so they know. If they, they buck the system, there's going to be some serious consequences as well. It's not so much that they're giving up some of the uh, wealth and privileges and stuff that they've gotten through this. It's also there will be a retribution that they might not be so happy with as well. And uh, like Crow said, this is all on loan uh, for them. And that's why they go along with it, because it's like they they figure the longer they go along with it, the better their quality of life will be for longer. And, you know, at some point. They can maybe get the pat on the back and say, okay, you're good now. You could get out of the public limelight and, and go live out the rest of your life, you know, uh, with still with these privileges or whatever, or go off to Mason Island or whatever it is that we joke about like that. But, right. um, you well, know, but that's the thing. I, I could take it actually a step worse. You know, has anyone ever considered why are they called stars? Um, this is the false worship idea. Um, in the real existence of a living man or a living woman there's only one one wheel moving here it's the sky clock 
Signs and Seasons, Luminaries, which I guess I would originally include at this point. Um, I don't even think I would, what we call planets now, those luminaries, I wouldn't include them in the original. I would include the sun, the moon, the stars, and what we call nature. Um, point is, is there was a time in the lives of human beings in this place we find ourselves where that got a lot of attention. When it got dark, you learned a lot from what was going on above your head, how to live and how to get closer to divinity, all these ideas. Well, here comes this false aspect with false light, man-made light, which is false light, projected onto a screen, and these became the false worship, the stars that everyone would now stare at, instead of going outside and staring at the stars that matter. Um, the whole thing's a put-up, the whole thing's a construct, and if you want to take the, the idea of dark side, light side, that's the dark side. There it is. Uh, not helpful. And look what role they've played in where we are now. Have you seen any famous person come out and say, hey, man, everyone knows we shouldn't be breathing our own exhaust fumes. This is not right. And by the way, leave those children alone. None, none of them have. Why is that? And probably goes further than just being under contract. There's probably film somewhere of someone messing with a wiener dog or Lord knows or who wants to know what may be held over their head. Point is, is they all pony up in line, don't they? Every time without fail. Yeah. Blood, is, yeah. blood, blood is thicker than water for some of them, but some of them are just being used and think of the rock stars what was that lady who did that uh remember jason back in the day a lady came with the decline of the western civilization she did one on rock stars came back later and i think she did it on the punk uh there were the two of them. It's the decline of western yeah. civilization part one the punk years and the decline of western civilization part two the metal years so there's the tools lowering the human morality and doing everything else but look what's going on they're dying they're basically drinking themselves to death they're throwaways. They're victims of their own success, if you can follow. Yeah. Now you know why Jim Morrison died at 27, because if he'd have stuck around long enough, he'd have been sitting in that pool chugging a gallon of vodka till his <laughs> liver moved out. That was the guitarist, <laughs> if I remember correctly, from the band Wasp. That the movie was filmed around 85-ish, when butt rock ruled the world. Butt rock. <laughs> And, and even yeah, in that, it, yeah, well, it had and his mom been was watching it. him sitting on the side right. of the pool. Pathetic. Right, exactly. It was the lowering of everything, and even the genre of music itself was a lowering. It was, without its image, it was unmarketable. In other words, the music on its own couldn't stand. Um, and people like to fake like it will, but I'll tell you what, another 10 years, there'd be three people on the planet listening to any of that, and if they do, it will be for nostalgic reasons. Like, we appreciate the 50s, even though none of us were there. Hmm. But when it comes to external war, the matter is different. Given two countries with equal natural resources, one a dictatorship and the other allowing individual liberty, the one allowing liberty is almost certain to become superior to the other in war technique in no very long time. As we have seen in Germany and Russia, Freedom and scientific research is incompatible with dictatorship. Germany might well have won the war if Hitler could have endured Jewish scientists, physicists. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Jewish bankers. Maybe that's a little more honest. <laughs> 
Russia will have less grain than if Stalin had not insisted upon the adoption of Lysenko's theories. It is highly probable that there will soon be in Russia a similar governmental incursion into the domain of nuclear physics. I do not doubt that if there is no war during the next 15 years, Russian scientific war technique will, at the end of that time, be very markedly inferior to that of the West, and that the inferiority will be directly traceable to dictatorship. I think, therefore, that so long as powerful democracies exist, democracy will, in the long run, be victorious. And on this basis, I allow myself a moderate optimism as to the future. Scientific dictatorships will perish through not being sufficiently scientific. What, what, where's the example, though? <laughs> he, found, he found a modern democracy somewhere that he could use as an example for that statement, because I can't think of one. Do we know of a country that chose its supposed leaders before the fact to get them into the running, to elect them, to hold office, and to govern? Do we know of any nation that truly fits that bill? I now, can't this, think of one. This, this is all double talk, though, too, when you're looking at it. Uh, talking about, uh, you know, Russia developing their scientific war technique. It'll be inferior to that of the West because but, of di dictatorship. Well, like, it never was, though. Their science was right. always just as good. That's the thing. I mean, this is all propaganda, pure and simple, right. as far as that goes. And what he's doing here is he's twisting the this Western ideology. Uh, he's he's actually substituting uh, democracy, the idea of democracy, for um, oligarchy. See, uh, he's he's kind of equating them as being the same thing here in that sense. So, you know, uh, it's a democratic oligarchy, pretty much. So that's kind of what he's, he's pushing for here. Uh, he wants to use the oligarchy ideas, but under the guise of democracy or, or some type of a democratic type system. And, that's and what I'll, he's talking about. He wants to get the best of both worlds with it. Well, don't we have to wonder, Wayne, if in the known history of the world there's ever been a true democracy of size that matters? Because first of all, they're going to point to the Greeks, but they were not democracy the upper richie riches got to vote. The women were secondhand citizens and property, supposedly. Um, it's really not democracy in the way we would recognize what, it, what it's supposed to be. So I'm asking, what example in history at any time can we show is approvable democracy? In other words, has it truly been tried? Well, that's the thing. I don't think that there's anything to really point to to say I, that this has been I successful. I may be wrong, but I can't think of anything. And I noticed another thing about the switch in language. I, I went to the end of this document and read what you were telling me. He was a lord. He went to Cambridge. He was basically a, a, an aristocrat, right? So he's absolutely on the wrong side of the dime here to be telling anyone anything. Um, but the, the point I would make here is you've got to have a true example to assert what he's asserting. Um, and as far as, I mean, I'm searching right now, I can't think of a country of size that's been a true democracy and listen to the language when he talks, like he talked about arbitrary power at no time did he ever assert that like royalty or rulers or the people on top were appointed by God, right? Cause that used to be the party line supposedly. Now they're just arbitrary. Whoever happened to grab the power. Yeah, but that's that's provably not so. But, right. uh, you know, he's coming at it from that vantage point. He, he doesn't want people to know, OK, I'm of the aristocratic, or, 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 I can't even talk, aristocratic bloodlines here. 
that these are my people that I represent or whatever. These are the ones that are in control, the royal bloodlines and stuff. He just wants people to think it's arbitrary, whoever sees the control. He see that's how he, he has plausible deniability with things. And, and that's and, also how he justifies the actions here. Right. Well. In, a, in a way, he's shifting that that idea, isn't he? Back in the day where I'm king and, the, you know, this is my wife, the queen, because God gave it to us by divine right. We are sitting in these thrones. That's the old party line. What he's done is shifted who the, who and what they're worshiping. Right now, it's science. Right. Now it's materialism. Now it's just like hyper materialism. Right. Um, that that's the God on worship, which is, in fact, why it says in God, we trust on your money. Think about those words. Do you ever pray and say in God, God, I trust or, you know, what is a trust? Has anyone looked up to see what a trust is? Um, you know, that was the shift into hyper materialism. And again, I just mentioned it in a show today, last week, Sunday, the 31st, uh, the episode of American Gods. And I can't believe I'm telling people to watch TV, but in the opening beginning of that show of American Gods, they lay it down verbatim, the shift from the supposed founding of this country when the divine right bestowed on living men and women was the foremost thought to be protected, how quickly it shifted to in God we trust on a dollar bill, making commerce the new deity. Outlined outlined verbatim. There it is. And, uh, you know, Russell says here, scientific dictatorships will perish through not being sufficiently scientific. So he's always pushing for more science, more scientism. And uh, I would argue that uh, the... uh, changing of uh, the um, worship from something godly to the monetary system is part of this scientific takeover and you know this whole advent of, of scientism so you know this this whole idea of in- infusing uh, this type of ideology into the currency and putting the in God we trust on the currency is part of this scientific uh, type of a, a, a system that uh, they, they wanted to implement. They wanted to use this whole idea, infuse that idea in people uh, of the trust. See, and that's that's the thing, the, the, the trust on the back of the dollar bill. Um, and that's the whole idea. They're shifting the focus from God, per se, to science as the salvation of mankind. And that's, right, it's the hyper-materialist view, and it's the push toward technocracy. And that's exactly what they're going for. There's a problem with this, though, as we've all come to realize as we enter the age of knowing things, um, science will only recognize what it can observe, what it can weigh, what it can measure. And yet the underpinnings of nature, none of those things can be done to it um, as far as we know. And so there's a wall to hit, isn't there? So unless the muckety mucks on high somewhere still have the old ways in their back pocket, that they're mingling with their science, they hit a brick wall. And it makes me wonder if it's true with the whole idea of nuclear weapons in order to scare people into submission. Uh, These are things that don't exist. And so why would you need to invent such a big boogeyman if you could pull off all these things you're claiming you could pull off? Well, because that's the thing. Uh, That's the big thing that they don't want us to know. See, their power over us is illusory. It's an illusion. They only have as much power over us as we allow them to. And they know this. 
And there's a lot of us that are beginning to understand this now. So uh, these fear tactics, this use of fear as, as a, a tool to control people, that's going to be a thing of the past pretty soon. People are, are starting to wake up in large numbers and realize, hey, you've used, we realize now what you've been doing. You've been u- using this fear tactic on us to try to get up to convince us that you have some sort of power over us or you, you have this type of weapon. You could, you could destroy us at will or whatever, this kind of thing. People are realizing it's a ruse. It's, it's an illusion. They don't really have that kind of power. They just want you to perceive that they have that kind of power. They want you to think that so that you'll go along with whatever it is they want without question because you're afraid if you buck the system, well, they have all this power and they will make your life miserable or they'll destroy you somehow. And it's an illusion, folks. Uh, These people that uh, claim to be these royal families and uh, these controllers and rulers of this world, this separate class that Bertrand Russell talks about here, uh, when we were looking at it earlier, how he said it'll be almost as if there's two different species uh, of of humans here. they have no real power over you, only what you perceive that they have over you. And uh, that's the thing. That's why they use fear the way that they do. That's why they use these social programming narratives the way that they do. It's in order to try and keep you held down. They don't want you to realize what kind of power we all really have. They don't have power over us like they present themselves to. They, it's an illusion. And it's a facade, and it's going to come down. It's a house of cards. And we're in that era now where we're beginning to know things. And I I could know this, that they have only the power over me that I allow them to have over me. So that's the bottom line when it comes down to it. But they don't want us to realize that. They want us to think that they're they're all powerful. They're all seeing. They're all knowing. They, they know everything about you and this and that. They have all these algorithms that, that track your data and they, they know all kinds of stuff about you. And that may be partially true to a certain degree. But the thing is, a lot of it's based on illusory concepts. They could only use it so much. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no one person or, or one small group of people, per se, that could collate and use all of this data in a, uh, a, a sort of... Uh, way against you like you would think that they can like they they can't they don't really take all this data and combine it all together into one place at one time uh the computers may do that and sift through that but a human being will never be able to sit through sit down and sort through all this data and be able to know something about you the way that a computer does and uh even though they have the computers to help them with this there's not somebody sitting here directing things around in that way to have this this kind of power over you it's an illusion they just want you to think that so that that's all i gotta say about that right now well uh, holy strawberry crepes batman it's four after and i got a show to get out (laughs) well we're about to finish this i just read the last paragraph and had a chuckle but we'll get there in a moment we may perhaps go further the causes which will make dictatorships lag behind in science will also generate other weaknesses all new ideas will come to be viewed as heresy so that there will be a lack of adaptability to new circumstances. The governing class will tend to become lazy as soon as it feels secure. If, on the other hand, initiative is encouraged in the people near the top, there will be constant danger of palace revolutions. One of the troubles in the late Roman Empire was that a successful general could, with luck, 
make himself emperor so that the reigning emperor always had a motive for putting successful generals to death. This sort of trouble can easily arise in a dictatorship, as events have already proved. And here we go, the denouement. For these various reasons, I do not believe that dictatorship is a lasting form of scientific society, unless, but this proviso is important, it can become worldwide. Ding, ding, ding. There it is. Why the push for new world order, one world government, all of those ideas? There it is right No, no, there. no, no. Great is reset. This... Great reset. Using the wrong buzzwords. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Fourth Industrial Revolution. Great reset. Not uh, worldwide totalitarianism. No, that's the wrong way to look at it. You have to use the buzzwords. Scientific. Yes, it's a scientific society. Technocracy. So, <laughs> that was a good choice, Wayne. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I know Crow's going to pop off in a moment. So, Crow, do you want to take a moment to talk about what it is we're dropping here in a few? Uh, we're busting out episode 293 with Alphonse Fagiolo. Uh, he's got a new website, and it'll have free documents and an area for people to help each other along. Alphonse has helped so many people, he can't even do anything else at this point, which is part of the reason for the website. But these are the ones that matter. Um, it's hard to almost imagine uh, that an unrebutted affidavit can actually stop damn near anything done to you. Um, it's pretty shocking how simple it has become. So we'll see. Um, this bullshit we're dealing with in the world, it won't last forever, but we don't know how long it will last. And the more people that catch on to the ideas we're laying down and implement them, maybe the sooner we'll get back to something that's worth dealing with. Because right now, this place sucks pretty hard. <laughs> That it does. <laughs> All right, Wayne, you got any final words? Um, no, I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered it all in there. Uh, good old Bertrand Russell just laying it out for us, and he was part of the planning for this stuff. So, you know, you can take what he says and uh, understand that there's, you know, something to it. And he's kind of laid it out in a blueprint-type style here. This book was originally written in the 1950s. And we see what society has become today. And I would still argue that oligarchy was the choice for the implementation of technocracy. And we could see that just presented by this chapter in this book. That was just one chapter. I mean, he goes on to say a lot of other things uh, within different parts of this book, too. Yeah, I but, think we're going to uh, revisit this a lot one. Of the, yeah, a lot of the stunning admissions just right here in Chapter 3 uh, were well worthwhile for us to read through the, the whole idea of diet injections and injunctions uh you know compelling people to uh <laughs> to be uh you know all on board for this whole idea that it just says it all right there all right that's gonna do it for this week thanks everybody for being here uh, we had a good crowd we had almost 500 people on youtube and 100 and ish on uh, DLive. I'd say that's a win. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you learned something, and we'll see you again next week. Take care, everybody.
Oh, too soon. 